So we are coming to the end of our sermon series looking at the book of 2 Samuel. If you have missed out on this series and you want it in a snapshot, you've actually got this rather cool poster on the wall there that, it, that tells the whole story of 1 and 2 Samuel uh, in uh, pictorial form and everything that's happened. And we, we studied through 1 Samuel a couple of years ago and then we've been looking at the book of 2 Samuel uh, this year. And these were originally one long book. Uh, that gets split into two, basically for the, for, for the sake of scroll and book length, but otherwise it's too long to print uh, in the medieval world. So uh, this is really one, one long story, and it's, we've been looking at the second part of that story this year, and particularly looking at the life of David, uh, one of the most important of Israel's kings. We followed David's journey from being on the run, in exile, to the king of a united Israel. We followed this man from being a shepherd, so obscure that his own father forgot that he existed, uh, through to uh, being the most prominent man in the whole nation. And how God has raised him up and blessed him. And how he then in turn brought other people to know God's ways, taught them how to follow him, obtained enormous wealth, it's a bit like James Bond. Every woman wanted to be with him and every man wanted to be, with, be him. He had wealth, women, military power and enormous prestige. And then he acted in an incredibly foolish way. And nearly threw everything away. By uh, uh, taking and sleeping with the wife of one of his generals and then having her husband murdered to cover it up. I mean, as mistakes go, that's a biggie. Uh, you think of the great political scandals of the last hundred years, you know, Nixon in America or uh, uh, any of the ones from Britain and the contemporary past. None of them have anything on this, right? This isn't that he was caught lying about some minor detail of his finances. He literally took and abused a woman and then had someone murdered to cover it up. And he was then confronted by what he'd done. This is where we were at last week. He was confronted with what he'd done by one of his best friends, Nathan. And when confronted, he confessed, was truly sorry, and received God's loving mercy and forgiveness. And that's where we left it last week. And it was an enormous blessing in knowing that. That no matter what we've done, God is always willing to accept us back for the sake of Jesus. There is nothing and no one who is beyond the grace and love of God. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that every day. I need to hear that every day. There is nothing and no one who is beyond the grace of God and the love of God and his forgiveness. And yet, David's friend Nathan warned him that his actions would have consequences. That you can't simply behave in this way, as he had with Bathsheba and with Uriah, the man he'd murdered, and the various others affected by this, and expect it to have no impact on the world around you. And the second half of 2 Samuel traces those consequences. Really, from chapter 13 through to chapter 24, or certainly chapter 20, the book is like an extended meditation on what happens as a consequence of what David did. Right? It explores that and looks at it. It explores how our failure to love God and love others comes to affect the world around us unless we deal with it. Now, I was going to preach through every single one of those chapters, and then I, I read them through and pondered them again, and it's quite repetitive, because it's all basically drawing out this one theme. So what I'm going to do instead is pick highlights from it, from the story as a whole, 
that help us to see how this works and then suggest some takeaways from the book. Now every week, uh, if you're not normally with us, you won't know this, but every week I give a big idea that we're going to look at, the, uh, what I call a lunchtime summary. The idea of this is that if you remember one thing from what I say, this is the one thing you should remember. If you uh, go home and your husband or your wife or your mum or your dad or your kids ask you, what is it you studied today at church? What was church about today? This is the one thing you can tell them it was about. And this is this week's summary. Even the greatest of us is flawed and in need of forgiveness. Yet if we're willing to come to God, he can forgive us and use us for great things. Even the greatest of us is flawed and in need of forgiveness. Yet if we're willing to come to God, he can take us, forgive us and use us for great things. So we're going to read 12 chapters of the Bible now. No, we're not. Uh, That would be a, a lot even for me. We're not going to read all of chapters 13 to 24, although I do recommend them. Uh, If you get home and you think, I'm going to turn on the TV because I want to watch the latest Swords and Sandals epic Viking, the next episode of Vikings or Game of Thrones, or you want to turn on Lord of the Rings or watch a James Bond movie, don't bother. Get your Bible out and read chapters 13 to 24 of 2 Samuel because it is the most extraordinary story. The, the pace at which it moves is, is, is electric. It, goes fa- it gets faster and faster as events spin out of control. It's an epic story of betrayal and battles that I honestly think you would struggle to better uh, anywhere. So as we've noted before, David has taken a lot of wives. He, it, it's interesting, when you read how God imagined kingship should work in Israel, the one thing, or one of the things he said the king should do, is not take lots of wives. Right, God, God wrote down several things that the king was not supposed to do, and one of them was, don't get into this business of making treaties by marrying into other families, because it's going to end in tears. It always ends in tears. Uh, David, however, has gone along with the way things are done in the world around him. He has married loads of different women, as we've seen, partly because he likes it. He's a man who likes the company of women. He is also modelling himself on all of the other kings of his day. And not just of his day, but of every day since then. Right, that if you want to marry together two political dynasties, the best way to do it is literally have them marry. I remember when I was at school, we studied uh, Henry VII and Henry VIII, seemingly ad nauseam. Uh, there was a civil war in England that raged for most of the 15th century between the house, uh, between two different houses, the houses of York and Lancaster. And it ended when Henry VII married the daughter of the opposite house. And so then they couldn't be at war with each other because they would be going to war with their own family. So you see, it makes sense. And David follows this custom. Every time he conquers a people or fights a battle against them, he ends up marrying one of the women in order that then they can't fight each other again. It's much harder to go to war against your own children. But he did this. It makes sense, but it was in direct defiance of what God had instructed him. See, often what makes sense to us as a way we should run the world, we look at God's rules and think, no, 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 that is a ridiculous idea. Why on earth would we do that? And actually, God knows best. You see, David defied God in this, and as a result, he had married an enormous number of women. And he had many children who had little or no connection with each other. 
And one of them, Amnon, came to really desire one of his half-sisters, a woman called Tamar. So Amnon feigns illness. He makes himself seem sick. You can read about this in uh, 2 Samuel 13 and 14. He fakes sickness and says, can Tamar come and nurse me? And then when Tamar comes and nurses him, he forces himself on her. And then despises her and pushes her away. Now she, understandably, is completely broken by this. And David, we're told, is angry at Amnon, but does nothing about it. So two years go by, and Tamar's whole brother, Absalom, is also angry. Now he understands, as all the best, uh, as all the best protagonists do, that revenge is a dish best served cold. And so he waits two years, and then he throws a party. And at this party, he has his men wait until Amnon is drunk, and then he kills him, has him murdered, in revenge for Amnon attacking Tamar. So Absalom flees into exile. I told you this is action-packed. This is all within about three chapters. We're now about 2 Samuel 15. Absalom flees into exile because he's committed murder. He's murdered one of the king's sons. Can't do that and hang around. So he's in exile for a while before Joab, one of the generals, arranges for him to come back. And a couple of years later, he gets readmitted to the court and everyone pretends nothing happened. Again, David is angry, but he does nothing about it. Absalom decides by this stage, now I quite fancy being king. So he launches a coup against David. About 2 Samuel 16 now. He launches a coup against David. David flees back into the desert. Absalom gets together all the wise counsellors of his day. He puts together his cabinet, if you like. And they tell him, the best thing to do, uh, mate, is go after David and kill him now. Because you don't want to hang around while David is in the wilderness. Because we've seen what happens and David's basically the best general Israel's ever seen. Absalom doesn't take this advice. He hangs around and waits, and sure enough, about 2 Samuel 16, David gathers another army and reattacks Jerusalem and wins a battle. And Absalom is killed. There's a huge battle in 2 Samuel 18 to 19, during which Absalom is killed. So David goes back to the throne, he's reinstalled, but he's significantly weaker, and largely in the hands of his generals. I guess you could think of contemporary political examples. One would be Theresa May. Right? This is a very, very current book. I'm not saying that to comment on whether she's good or bad. I try not to have an opinion. But if you want this illustrated, what this looks like, she had a majority in Parliament before she called an election, called an election and returned significantly weaker. Came back, was reinstalled, but was then dependent upon the goodwill of those around her. And David is in that position. He's got a hung Parliament, if you like. So David is then prone to other attacks. And in 2 Samuel 20, there's a second coup attempt, this time from Saul's old tribe. And David again holds him off. Uh, but now his generals are getting more and more out of control. I told you this is contemporary. Right? The, the, the people who are supposed to be supporting him are getting wilder and wilder and start to do what they want, rather than what he wants. Joab starts to murder his old rivals. And the book ends with David in office, but not in power. And if you follow this through into 1 Kings, there's then a third coup attempt, and David arranges for Solomon, his son, to take over. 
it's a gripping but tragic series of events. I hope I haven't just made it boring because that is, it's an unbelievably interesting story. It's a story, however, largely of unintended consequences. Of those things that flow from one action that you don't see coming. But that seem as a chain to get on and on and on. I actually was thinking about how way to make this brighter. And I came across this video. I remember this video from about 16 years ago. And it is the best example of this that I've found. Okay, so if you want to remember one thing from this uh, service, it's by Honda. No, uh, it's not. I-, I like that video because when you've set the original cog rolling, there is no way that you can imagine that what's going to happen at the end is that the car comes down the... Yeah, at the end. There's no way that you can imagine that what happens is that the car will roll down the ramp. It's not something you can see. And yet one event leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, that inexorably, inevitably, leads to the car coming down the ramp. Apparently it took them 30 times to get that right. But it was filmed in one take, which is amazing, I think. I want to trace how the cog that David started rolling leads to the events we've described. Because that's really what 2 Samuel is about. The second half of 2 Samuel is about. It's a cog that David started rolling in his own life that leads to everything crashing down a ramp at the end. And it's really, really helpful to see how that happened because we want to be people who can avoid it happening for us. And also to see how in the midst of the extraordinary mess David had made of his life, God was still loving and faithful. And so I'm going to highlight two things. First of all, the habits we cultivate, and secondly, the, whole, the cultures we create. Habits we cultivate. This is stuff that we do that we don't realise we do. Things that we do wrong 
that hurt other people and that, that aren't according with what God wants, that we don't recognise quickly enough and then come to repeat over and over and over again. Uh, I am I'm not particularly old, I'm 34, but my experience, even in my limited periods, is that habits that I didn't deal with, that I didn't like when I was younger, are now much harder to break. And I'm willing to bet that if there is a habit that I have now, that I don't deal with now, by the time I'm 64, I will find it even harder to stop doing it. One of these is leaving my clothes on the floor. I know that I leave my clothes on the floor. I, I know that it drives Heather nuts uh, at night time. On the other hand, she's got a whole dressing table to put them on. I, I don't. I only have a piece of floor. But even so, I have tried to break this habit. But because I didn't break it when I was a teenager, and then I did it again when I was at uni, I now can't help it. I just take my clothes off and I leave them there. And the next day I think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. It's much harder to break it now than it was 20 years ago. David did the same thing, right? He builds up this habit... Of, it's fine, he, uh, he, she can stay in, that's fine. Don't worry, you don't need to worry. No, it's not a problem. Um, don't worry at all. David didn't deal justly with his friends and family when they did wrong. But in the good times, he didn't learn how to do what was right, even when it hurt the people he cared about. He was in many ways a really fair and just man. We've actually seen that as we followed his life through, hopefully. David was a man who did what was right, even when it hurt him. So some guy comes to him and says, I've killed the king, do you want to be king? And he says, no, you're a murderer, I'd rather become king another way. It doesn't take shortcuts. But when it comes to his friends, he overlooks the wrong they do to each other and the wrong they do to other people. To put it another way, he's actually more loyal to his allies and friends than he is to God, which is a really big problem in a king. This happened first in the good times we saw a few weeks ago. When Joab, one of David's oldest generals, murdered a man in revenge, David stood up and said, it's nothing to do with me, I don't want you to think I had anything to do with this. But he did nothing about it. See, Joab should have been punished, he should have been disciplined. But nothing happened, because he was David's ally. Now, it didn't seem to have any consequences. It was just a cog that started rolling. But then we go on and we go on and we go on and we go on and we go on. And then we find that David's now developed a habit of not dealing with people close to him. So when his son rapes his daughter, David does nothing about it. Because he doesn't want to discipline his own son. And then when his other son murders the first son, he does nothing about it because he won't deal with the second son. And then eventually, Joab comes back and starts to murder people again, and again, David does nothing about it. You see, what started as one decision that seemed to have no consequences, a single cog that started rolling, has become a habit that David can't break. Why recount this bloody history? Well, it shows two things about ourselves. First, if we don't deal with bad habits early, they repeat themselves in more and more destructive ways. If we don't deal with bad habits early, they repeat themselves in more and more destructive ways. I remember my nan, bless her, as she got older, she seemed to get ruder and ruder and ruder. 
And she was a lovely woman. I loved her to pieces. She was very, very funny, very, very humble. But she, by the time she was in her 80s, she didn't feel any hesitation in telling you exactly what she thought. And very often what she thought was that you hadn't visited often enough or early enough. And you're like, well, I was here 15 minutes ago. So, well, where did you go? I was like, well, the toilet, Daddy. I had to go to the shops. She's like, well, you shouldn't have left. And what happened, right, with my nan was that as she got older... The habits that she'd built up over the years, which was thinking critical thoughts, then became so entrenched that she just stopped filtering them. So by the end, she would tell you everything she thought of you. You've put on weight, she would say to me as I came in. You're like, oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Danny. I was feeling really insecure about that. If we don't deal with bad habits early, we repeat them in more and more destructive ways. My friends, if you notice some sin or problem in your character or actions, don't put off dealing with it when you're young. Or, if you feel like you're old, don't put off dealing with it now. It might seem that it has no consequences. It might just seem like a foible. Or as even as if it's actually quite effective. You might lose your temper with your employees at work. Or those who supervise you, who you're supervising at work. Or with, or gossip about a mum behind her back at school. Or be mean and catty about the ladies who come and share the lunch club with you. And it might seem to have no consequences. For David, it seemed as if nothing bad happened at all when he didn't discipline Joab. In fact, stuff just got better and better. But the habit was built until eventually he couldn't break it. And it it was incredibly destructive. Second, if you have authority over someone, if we have authority over someone, whether at work, in a club, in a society, in the home with children, we must, must make sure that we do justice, even when it affects our friends. If you are, a, if you are someone who employs other people, or someone who works with other people, or someone who supervises them, or has responsibility for children or grandchildren, or any other situation where you're responsible for people, the temptation is to go easy on your friends and favourites. That's the temptation. Oh, it doesn't matter. My friends, if we do that, what happens is that people take justice into their own hands. So eventually you'll find that discipline breaks down totally. So David didn't deal with Amnon, so Absalom murdered him. David didn't deal with Joab, so Joab just kept on killing people he didn't like. How differently could the situation have turned out if David had taken Amnon and done justice in the first place? Most of 2 Samuel could have been avoided if he had been willing to discipline his friends as well as his foes. Secondly, what about the culture we create? We have to be aware that even where we've acknowledged our failure and been forgiven by God, we may have created a culture that's unhelpful or may lead others to committing further sin. And we've got to watch out for that and take steps to avoid it. Well, you see this in societies. You see this in societies. I'm going to make a sweeping sociological and historical argument now because uh, I'm unaccountable and you can't challenge me on it. So here we go. British society winked at slavery for hundreds of years and eventually repented of it, right? And repented of it with zeal. So if, you, if you're not aware of the history, in the 19th century, not only was the slave trade outlawed, 
but the uh, Royal Navy was deployed to turn back ships that were trading in slaves from other countries. They patrolled the North Atlantic, trying to stop the slave trade. Right? So it was a wholehearted repentance of that particular sin. But what has happened is that in the meantime, a culture has been created in which people of different ethnicities and races are seen as less than, and it is inherited, and it is then spoken of and developed in racist attitudes today. So we were the children of our parents, and our grandparents, and our great-grandparents, and the decisions they took create the culture we live in. And it affects us. And if you want to trace back where that root of racism is, I believe it's in a culture that was willing to tolerate a sin for so long, and when it repented of it, didn't do anything about the culture it created. So David's most egregious sin was taking Bathsheba, sleeping with her in an abusive and adulterous way, and then murdering Uriah. Right? These are the two biggies he did. He abused a woman, and he murdered her husband. Now David sincerely repented of them. If you don't believe that, read Psalm 51. He sincerely was sorry, and he tried to put it right. But what he, and he did put it right with God. He was forgiven completely. There's no one who's outside the mercy and love of God. But he has set this example for his sons of how you treat women and how you treat those who displease you that has a ripple effect that then affects how they behave. And that culture is never addressed as far as we're aware. David's sons go on to repeat his failing and add to it. So David abused and raped uh, Bathsheba, so Amnon abuses and rapes Tamar. Why not? It's how I was brought up. Even though he's repented of it, he hasn't put right the culture. Absalom looks at his father and says, how do we handle people who anger us, or where we don't get our own way? Well, we arrange for them to be killed. And so Absalom repeats David's sin. He would then murder Amnon, he began a civil war and abused his father's other wives. Now I don't believe that David consciously set out to teach his sons these lessons. Any more than British society in the 17th century set out to teach future generations that people of a different skin colour were inferior to them. No one has that thought, this is what I'm trying to teach you. In fact, with David, we know the way his sons behaved angered him. He knew he'd done wrong and he knew they were doing wrong, but he didn't deal with the tone his actions had created for those who followed him. Again, I'm not making a party political point here, but another really interesting example of this is the Conservative Party in the 1990s. They deposed of their leader in a political coup in 1989 or 1990, Margaret Thatcher, right? The next five leaders of the Tory party were overthrown by their own MPs. I'm pretty sure it's five. Now, I'm not saying that each of them thought we're creating a culture in the organisation that means that this will be repeated and repeated and repeated, but that's the way it worked. Now, to some extent, this is just... A description of the pain of living in a fallen and broken world. How much of the hurt, the anger and the abuse that we experience and participate in is the indirect result of us being shaped by examples of our ancestors or our cultures? How much of the way we behave unconsciously reflects how we've been brought up?
I spoke to a friend of mine who uh, is a psychologist who um, works as a clinical psychologist. And she was talking about her overwhelming desire to avoid being McDonald's dad. McDonald's dad was uh, referring to her own father who was so, had such a big outburst of anger, he had an anger problem, that one day when they were uh, travelling he ordered something from uh, a McDonald's drive through window and they miscounted his change and he was so angry that he threw all the food back through the window and drove off. Right? Okay, he had a real anger problem and it shaped her the way she handles anger. There's another point, we can't fix all the consequences of what we've done. You can't fix everything that flows from what you've done. And we do have to look and trust God, who Paul says, works for good for all those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now with that said, there are things we can do to put right the culture we create. One of them is that we can acknowledge the specifics of what we've done wrong publicly. I don't mean standing at the front of church. That was a bombshell from this sermon, is that next week we're going to have public confession from the front of church. See you all there. No, I don't mean that. What I mean is that there is a proper and right way of acknowledging before those we have, we affect, what we have done wrong. I will be, give you an example from my own life. I struggle with losing my temper. And I struggle with losing my temper with my children. And occasionally with Heather. And one of the things I have had to develop is a willingness to say to my boys, boys, I want you to know that the way that I spoke to you was not right and I am sorry. Because I lost my temper and it is not good to lose your temper. Now that is embarrassing. I'll tell you right now, my flesh does not like doing that. Because it is being willing to be humble before a seven-year-old. And to accept what I've done wrong. And to be specific about it. But if I don't do that, they are going to grow up learning that the best way of expressing yourself is to lose your temper with other people. And I want them to know that not only has God forgiven me, but I want them to know that it's not okay. And that I did it. I wonder whether if David had acknowledged what he'd done, how much he bitterly regretted it, and made restitution in the sight of his sons, they would have learned a different lesson. I think uh, a good example of this is Zacchaeus. Those of you who are familiar with the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He, he's somebody who extorts money from people, basically. And when he meets Jesus, his life is transformed and he repents. He, he stops doing this. And he stands up in public and says, I'm going to repay all the money I've taken. And I'm going to add four times as much. So he's publicly saying to the people he's hurt, I know what I did was wrong and I want you to know that I know that. And you to know that as well. Part of turning away from pride and selfishness is owning it and its consequences before others. This obviously requires wisdom and discretion, but it is important if we're to teach and heal not only our own souls, but our communities and families as well. My friends, it hurts, but it's necessary if we're to stop it. 
if British society in the 19th century had not only outlawed the slave trade, but said publicly, we acknowledge that the way we viewed other people was wrong, and we repent of it, not only putting it right, but we want to accept that the attitude of our hearts was wrong. I wonder how many problems with race that have subsequently flowed from this country would have been avoided. And you can follow that through in families. Being aware that the way we've behaved will influence others should make us aware of the risk of them making the same mistakes as us. David should have known that his sons were likely to have an odd view of women because he taught them to have an odd view of women. And he should have been watching out for it. Now, if you know that you have a problem with your temper, look out for it in your kids. If you know that you have a problem, you've had a problem with, I don't know, taking stuff dishonestly, watch out for it in your kids or in the organisation you run, in your, in, your, in your workplace. If you've been somebody who did this, watch out for that culture developing and take steps to address it. Compassionately but firmly. Maybe David could have spoken to Amnon and said, look, I can see the way you're looking at her. I've been down that road. I know where it ends. Don't do it. Now this sounds like a downbeat or tragic way to end the story. I'm aware that I've, I, I sound like that. Bit Eeyore-ish. In many ways, that's how human stories do end. Enoch Powell, while we're speaking of the problem with inherited race relations, Enoch Powell famously said that all political careers end in failure, unless they are cut short. I think you could extend that and say actually a lot of human life ends in failure unless it's cut short. But throughout this period of despair and hardship for David, God remained faithful. So when David came to write down his last words, this is what he wrote. These are, this is Second uh, Samuel 23, verses 1 to 6. These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob. The hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over the people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the heaven, earth, grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are to be, all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not to be gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They're burned up where they lie. Ponder those words for a minute. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant secured and arranged in every part. At the end of his life, after all of this turmoil, two failed coups, his sons being a disaster, his own life ending in ignominy, David says God is faithful. He's kept his promise to me. He has granted my desire, my every desire, 
What is the desire of a dying man? It's eternal life. He would be the wisest. He, we see that practically. David's son Solomon sat on his throne after he died. He would be the wisest king in Israel's history. A byword for good and wise rule for millennia to come. God took all of this mess in David's family and brought from it a great king. More than that, however, David knew that God's promises to him stretched into eternity. He has made with me an everlasting covenant. God's promise of a son who would be the eternal king, who would order and secure and prosper David beyond this life, sustained him and gave him hope. My friends, you might feel like your life is a total mess. I have no idea. But David would say is that whatever we face, whatever we've done, whatever we endure, whatever we've caused or permitted, in Christ we can always have hope. St. Paul puts it this way. He can't help saying this. It comes over over and over again in his letters. Over and over and over again. He says this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he can't deny himself. Whatever you've done, wherever you've gone, whoever you've become, he remains faithful. Why? For Jesus' sake. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Wherever you've gone, whatever you've done, whoever you've become, he will do it. Why? For Jesus' sake. He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You might feel as if everything is falling apart. Goodness knows David must have felt that. The end of his life, stuck in a desert again. The same one he'd escaped from to become king. With a younger man on the throne and all of the council of Israel with him. It must have felt like everything was falling apart. And yet, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. If there is one overarching message of this book, it is this. God is faithful. Jesus loves you. And the circumstances of your life do not change that. My friends, some of us will rise and fall. Some will hope and despair. Some of us will be wise and others fools. Most of us will do all three in one. And yet if we are Jesus Christ's, he will never let us go. Even the greatest of us is flawed and in need of forgiveness. Yet if we're willing to come to God, he can forgive us. And use us to do great things for his glory. We're just going to take some time now to be quiet. I'm going to play a song, some music. I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit will come. And if you sense that God's saying something to you, this is a good time to respond. You don't need to respond out loud. It's just a quiet time to pray. If you feel like God's sharing something with you that you want to share with us, then come and share it with us. And we'll make space for that. Or if there's a picture you want to share, then feel free to share that. And then we're going to stand and we're going to do some more worship. So let's just be quiet. I pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us. Meet with us, minister grace to us. I just sense that there's someone here who God's saying to my son, I will never let you go. You feel as if you're spiraling out of control. But I will never let you go. Let's just be quiet. We pray, come Holy Spirit.